I want to encourage you to open a Bible, if you have one in front of you, to the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian church that Paul wrote. We're going to be back in the second chapter of Ephesians, so Ephesians chapter 2. The words will appear on the screen behind me, but it is always most helpful to have a Bible in your hands. Um, We have quite a few church Bibles. You're welcome to go grab one of those, Um, not least because I think it's so important that you see the force and power of um, God's Word with your own eyes and, and, and look at the text as we open it up together. We have over the past few weeks been opening up this passage from Ephesians 2.11 in which Paul describes the new reality of the church as an international um, entity or organism that was transcending and growing rapidly among different people groups across the Roman world at the time that Paul wrote this, bringing together people of very different backgrounds and ethnicities and also classes, putting master and slave alongside one another in worship, Jew and Gentile. And this was something really unseen in history, and I would not hesitate to say that the church, um, despite all her flaws and failings, has been the most beautiful representation of peace among nations that the world has known, and yet there is more for us to pursue together on this theme, and more we must pray for and actively be participants in if we're to see the will of Christ fulfilled and the glory of Jesus displayed. So I want to read to you then, with that in mind, I want to read to you then from Ephesians 2.11 down to verse 18. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, Anyone who is not a Jew, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's highlighting there the great division between Jew and Gentile. Uh, The circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The living God had been Israel's God. Few people had come to know him or know about him even until this particular moment when the Apostle Paul and the other apostles began to preach Jesus to the nations. He says, you were ignorant, you were strangers, you were were totally outside of this, this fellowship until now. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that brings peace between us and God and peace between peoples. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. I want our focus today to be on those last two verses. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now the basic claim that Paul's been making and arguing 
in the course of this, this part of the letter to the Ephesians is that Christ alone brings peace to people groups and across the barriers that separate ethnicities and races. And that was primarily true at the time that he was writing of the great boundary line that existed between Jew and Gentile. But it was also true by extension to all the other boundary lines that existed between peoples. And so we've been seeing in this the implications. And what he has done is he's shown us how all of us would have formerly seen ourselves in our differences. That's how he begins in this passage. He says, you were, you were once a disparate group of peoples. So we see our differences. But now if you've become a believer in Jesus, you retell your story as one who is outside to one who is now inside. And when you're inside and you understand the love of Jesus and what he has done for you in the cross, this is now your new identity. And it takes priority over all the other ways that we can understand and form our identities. Our new identity is as the redeemed of God, which means that you find yourself alongside other people who are like you, the redeemed. And he describes how Christ has accomplished this. And how he did it by abolishing the law, that great source of ethnic pride for the Jews. And of course, ethnic pride is the reason for all divisions between peoples. And none of us has a right to stand on any kind of pride to distinguish ourselves from others. He speaks about how Christ was um, creating in himself one new man, or it could be translated a new humanity, a new race, a people group belonging to him, hidden in Christ, the redeemed. And how this is all achieved by reconciling us to the Father. Once we know the Father, we can know his family. And we can find ourselves experiencing the peace of God among brothers and sisters of all different races and ethnicities. Now, we have reason to take this theme up one more time. Over the series of these three messages. Why, why revisit this again? Well, because I think... The remaining part of this is to understand the solemn and sober call that exists upon us as Christians, each one of you, if you call yourself a follower of Christ. The great calling that we have in this area to be peacemakers. And we begin with understanding that Christ's mission is defined in part by that word peace. He's described in Isaiah 9 as the Prince of Peace. And in Isaiah, in those chapters 52 and chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, in which he's describing the coming of Jesus many centuries before he came, he uses this kind of language. He says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news or the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. He's announcing the coming of a preacher who would bring peace between us and God and peace to the nations. And then when Isaiah was glimpsing what would happen to our Savior, to the Messiah, when he would die upon the cross in Isaiah 53, that vivid portrait of a Savior who would have to be killed and slain for the sins that separate us from God and from each other, he describes Christ's mission in this way. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Which means that Christ is the great peacemaker of history. The one who comes to bring peace to your soul 
by helping you understand the love of the Father, but then also brings people groups together under the banner of his own name. But then it doesn't finish there, because what Christ then commissions his people to do in the New Testament is to be peacemakers. Do you remember the, the line in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Which I understand like this, that a son bears a likeness to a father. And to therefore carry the family likeness, to be seen to be sons of God, to be seen to be the children of God, we bear the message of peace. You can be reconciled to God and to each other. That's the essence of our gospel. We're peacemakers. At the end of the letter to the Ephesians, when Paul's talking about the armor of God, and he begins describing the various, using this metaphor of armor, like a Roman legionary. One of the um, pieces of armor that he describes there in Ephesians 6, verse 15, are the shoes that we are to wear. He says that we, we put on a shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So that some, a Christian who is faithful to Jesus and faithful to his message is someone who is carrying, embodying in themselves and carrying on their lips the message wherever you go, have peace with God and have peace with each other. We are to be the people of peace. It's our mission. It's our calling. And therefore, I'm starting with this understanding today. That there are a few things more important or urgent for us than to recover the fullness of the gospel in this area. In every age of the church history, the gospel message that we believe has been distorted in some way. Elements have been downplayed or ignored or denied or forgotten. And you can think how even just in our day and age, there are so many ways in which the gospel gets distorted. For example, sometimes people preach the gospel, the love of God, but remove that element that you must repent of your sin. You must turn away from those things that displease the Lord. And so people are given the false comfort that you can know peace with God without without jettisoning those things that displease him in your life. And I say, that's a lie. That's a false gospel. God calls you to repent and to believe in Jesus. Historically, when you go back through the history books, you discover many other er errors. You discover preachers, bishops, and those who believe that the, we, we want to downplay the necessity of the blood of Christ because it feels a little bit primitive in a day and age like ours to think about God as an angry God who needed blood to assuage his anger against sin. And I say, no, that's the, that's the reason Christ died. We cannot diminish or downplay aspects of the gospel. Some in history have wanted to dial down the exclusivity of Jesus, saying that he's the only way to God. They say, no, 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 surely God has, there's all kinds of ways of reaching God. Jesus is just one way. I say, no, that's a distorted gospel. Well, the sufficiency of faith. This was the great discovery of the Reformation, wasn't it? That you can know God by faith and faith alone. Trusting in Jesus is enough for you to have a clear conscience, to know that all your sin wiped away. Now, you can look in every age and see ways in which the gospel has been distorted and damaged and broken because of 
our inability to see it in its fullness. But arguably, arguably, the most prevalent error in the history of the church has been the inability to see that the peace among peoples is at the heart of the gospel. That the gospel message is not the full gospel unless it brings us together as one people under God. And so it saddens us when we go back through the history books and we admire certain great men of God whose theological insights changed the world, but discover that they had incredible blind spots in this area. Martin Luther, whose discovery of the, the, the message of, or rediscovery of the message of justification by faith alone through grace alone, that you can be saved through no work of your own, but just trusting in Jesus. That released, pe the, the, that released people into freedom and liberty of understanding the gospel. He changed the world. But tragically, he had a deep animosity to the Jews that got worse as he got older because they rejected the message he was teaching. And it's so sad, isn't it, when we see this sort of thing? Or Jonathan Edwards, the, one of America's greatest intellectuals and a, a, a man with profound insight into the beauty and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also a slave owner in the 1700s. And we have to look at these characters with all the, you know, the warts and all and understand that we have blind spots. It makes you reflective, doesn't it, about ourselves. What is it that we are missing in our day and age, the ways in which we distort the gospel? But I'm trying to make the point here that arguably the way in which the gospel has been diminished most consistently throughout history has been our inability to bring people together under the banner of Jesus as his accomplishment that he achieved on the cross. And the way in which instead we so often defaulted into divisions along ethnic and racial lines. Now, therefore, friends, I want to ask the question, how can we see our solemn calling in this particular dimension to be ethnic peacemakers? And I want to take a kind of overview of the verses that we've been reading and focus in on these last couple of verses to give you three answers to that. To see the enemy of ethnic peace, the experience of ethnic peace, and the mission of ethnic peace. The enemy, the experience, and the mission. Let's begin then with the enemy of ethnic peace. And I want to spend a good amount of time on this because I think it is so vital that we see these truths. What is the division? What is the root, let me put it that way, of division and suffering in this area that causes peoples to hate one another? Now, there are many, I think, in our day and age who focus upon the externals. And I mean by that the world in which we live and its systems and its policies and its and its procedures as the major problem that has to be dealt with. And so we look at unjust systems, and we look at inequities in societies, and we look at the disadvantages that exist in society. 
And we tell ourselves, if we can just fix these issues, then the problem will be dealt with. And I feel deeply skeptical about that as the, the first answer, especially for us as Christians. We understand that the situations and conditions in which we live in the world are important. And we must never tire of being interested in and addressing these things, but they are insufficient for dealing with the root issue because you can have a perfect system and still despise each other. The real problem the Bible shows us is at the heart level. It exists here at the end of verse 16 when Paul's describing Christ's accomplishment in this way that he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And all the way through this passage, he's been putting peace in opposition to hostility. Hostility. It's the same in another passage in, in Titus. Where Paul's describing the state of the human heart before we meet Jesus. And he says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And none of us can deny that that's the condition in which Christ found us. Slaves to passions and pleasures. Just hedonists, just pursuing whatever pleasure you can get in the moment. And then he says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So he's saying, when I went out into the world to preach the gospel as an apostle of Christ Jesus, what I consistently found was people who were slaves to their passions and despising each other, hostility. And of course, the miracle that Paul saw unfolding behind, before his very eyes was the reversal of that hostility, peoples being brought together who had no business loving each other apart from the power of Jesus. Where do we see this hostility? Well, then, when Paul was preaching, perhaps the primary dividing line, as we've been seeing, was between Jew and Gentile. The tragic division, the barrier that had crept in, because the Jews were a distinguished, special people. But unfortunately, knowing their calling had distorted their hearts, and they'd become proud. And the counter-reaction from Gentiles was to despise the Jews. So there was this great antagonism that developed between Jew and Gentile. The Jew maintaining arm's distance from others, not eating with others, dressing differently, abiding by different rhythms and festivals and so on. And the Gentiles looking at them as just the people who were um, unwelcome. And tragically, of course, this division still exists to our day. My wife grew up in North London, had um, a good number of Jewish friends at school, and she said that one day she was walking down Tottenham Court Road with one of um, these guys. And he was just dressed normally, looked just like any other white guy. And then as they're walking along, a man, a passerby, just muttered, effing Jew. Just as he well, used the real language, of course, but you know what I mean. And... You see this sort of thing all the time, don't you? The, the tragedy of these animosities that are deep-rooted and deep-seated and that still exist, even between Jew and Gentile. 
If you're asking the question, well, now, what would Paul be writing about now if he was writing this letter to our context in central London? I'm quite sure he wouldn't have lost sight of the Jew-Gentile issue. But I think he would have seen many of the other dividing lines in our society. The British Isles has been marked by deep divisions, hatred against the Jew, against uh, gypsies and Irish and, and other ways in which we found deep divisions ethnically. And of course, in our day and age, the prevalent, most obvious division has been because of skin color, what we call race, but really it's just melanin. Just three days ago, I was preparing this message and I stepped out to go and... Um, get a sandwich from a local shop. And as I was waiting at the, at the self-checkout, a man behind me started yelling at the top of his voice to a cashier who was about 15 meters away, saying, I paid already, I paid already. And I turned to him and said, look, you need to calm down. And it didn't help the situation. He seemed to, <laughs> he dialed it up. Um, he dialed it up and at that point, it very quickly became a race issue. The woman was, ethnically speaking, from South, a South Asia. Um, she may have grown up in Bromley, for all I know, but he began shouting, this is England. This is a free country. This is England, not effing Bangladesh. And it was a vivid example for me as I was meditating on what we were thinking about for this Sunday of this kind of ter terrible way of thinking and feeling towards others. And it surprised me for a couple of reasons. One was just because how quickly a disagreement around paying became a race issue as though the two things are in any way connected. And then also how the staff, who were all ethnic minority as far as I could tell, how nonchalantly they treated the issue because this is just normal. That was perhaps more shocking to me. I was feeling outraged, and, and yet it was just like a kind of shrug it off, you know, another one. I'm grateful that over recent years, one of the ways in which I think our insight has grown, especially if you belong to a kind of the majority um, population here in the UK, our insight into this area has grown. Our understanding of the everyday experiences and sufferings of those who are not majority. And after the death of George Floyd in 2020, the elders and wives of the church, so me and my wife and the Boardmans and the Moseses, we invited um, a good number, some dozens of the black people in our church to come onto a Zoom call in which we were just able to ask our questions and understand the experiences that people had endured um, on account of race, those who'd grown up or moved here to this country. And some of the, I took very detailed notes, which I've re revisited a number of occasions to refresh myself and understand better the issues. But some of the consistent themes were this, these. Um, one was just encountering racist humor in very casual ways, but they're actually cut deep. You know, one girl told the story of a joking around lynching at a party, and it, it really hurt her. And it hurt her more that her friends didn't stand up and oppose the humor. 
There were feelings, another prevalent issue, were feelings of sensitivity about race in public spaces. You know, I remember some friends of ours who were part of Grace in the first year that we started, a beautiful African-American couple, um, a lawyer and a doctor who'd moved to come and help us out for a season before they moved back to the States. They, they told the story of, they told stories like how when they go into their, their block of flats in London, um, if, you know how it is if you, you have a fob and someone in front of you is fobbing in before you and you just follow them in, you feel slightly awkward because don't, they don't know if you're an intruder or not. But they said every time they, if they ever happened to them, the person would turn back and, and make sure the door closed before they could come in. And of course that generally doesn't happen to most of us, but it happened to them. And there were people in this call telling these kinds of stories of feeling, you know, they go into a shop and feeling watched by others, um, like the security guards, or the kind of cold welcome in restaurants. One guy said how if he went to a restaurant with a group of friends, black friends, he said they had to go in like onto Noah's Ark, two by two, so as to not um, be turned back at the door, and of being blamed if there was an altercation that took place in public. They spoke of the need to develop deep resilience in life early on being taught to work harder because there were more barriers to overcome in the world in order to get where you wanted to be. He spoke of dealing with false assumptions. One guy said, you know, his neighbor had asked him for drugs. Of course, he's not a drug dealer. You know, and, and that just, just betrayed assumptions and, and in a way that's deeply cutting and hurtful, of being pulled over by the police for no reason. It's happened to me once in my life, but that's because I pulled an illegal maneuver. I've got to hold my hand to that. This wasn't because of that. It was just a matter of being in a car driving. They spoke of the feelings of deep hopelessness and powerlessness and anger in the face of a world that often feels hostile and set against you. But more encouragingly, one of the beautiful themes that came through was of the way in which aspects of the biblical truth come more alive. One girl said how, you know, those parts of Bible, the Bible's teaching, we, we learn that this world is not our home. Become more real when you, when you see an unwelcome atmosphere. And also of Christ's words on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You, know, you can understand a little bit more of Christ's heart for us when you see hostility yourself. And so, we have to see that what Paul was wanting to zoom in on here when he said that Christ came and killed the hostility. We have to see that this hostility is all around us. And it's vital, I think, that all of us as Christians understand this, not in order to induce false guilt. I think part of the damaging effect of the conversation that was taking place two years ago was this assumption that if you're white, you must feel guilty on a, because of these things take place. And I don't think that, that, that squares at all. We don't have guilt by association because of skin color. But rather because, partly because it might... These stories might bring about a measure of repentance in your own heart if you've harbored any kind of animosity along these lines. But also mainly because it deepens our capacity to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we don't dismiss the issues. 
when, when someone wants to share something of their experience. It's not, it's not something you just poo-poo or say, well, you know, are you sure, or those kinds of responses. So that we're not avoiding the issue awkwardly, as though it's not there when clearly it is. And so that ultimately we don't aggravate the issues either. And I think this is one of the areas where I think it's certainly difficult to understand perfectly if you're not from an ethnic minority because you think, well, we all we have humor and so on, let's just relax. But it's easy to aggravate these issues by being insensitive to, to them. And so for all these reasons and more, I believe that our calling as Christians obviously is to, to know better the experiences and the sufferings that people endure in life so that we can just be better brothers and sisters to each other and ultimately extend the welcome. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that Christ in his ministry on earth, he seems to, in most of the stories of his encounters with people, he seems to want to move towards someone who feels like an outsider. And he understands them where they're at and moves to them with the compassion of Christ, often challenging as well, but always with the extension of grace and peace. And therefore, Christ-likeness as Christians is a posture of the welcome and love of Christ that moves very deliberately and intentionally across boundaries, particularly ethnic and racial ones. There are others, of course. I also think, though, that there's another side to this when we're thinking about this theme of hostility. That just as the Jews and the Gentiles experience the two-way hostility, I think it's important as Christians we can see that, that there is a two-way hostility in the world at large. Now, I don't see this in our church, and I don't see this among folk in our church who belong to ethnic minorities, so to speak. But I think we have to be aware of this dynamic in the world at large. There are some people who deny this. I remember about three and a half years ago having a conversation with a woman and we were discussing race issues and she made the point to me, it was her belief that it was impossible for black people to be racist because of the power differential. And that took me a while to get my head around what she was thinking and feeling about these issues. And of course, I understand what she was saying, but we have a word for that. What she was describing was oppression. And oppression is a one-way thing. The oppressed cannot become the oppressor. But I think on racial issues, as much as oppression is an element of it, we also have to be aware, I think it's more helpful, rather than using the language of racism, if that's what it's come to mean, it's more helpful, I think, to use the language of racial animosity. Because it more obviously shows that this can move in every direction, can't it? And that the hostility doesn't only exist one way, but can exist both ways. I was surprised and a little taken aback, seeing an example of this a couple of weeks ago when the queen was, was dying. And the news had broken that she was, she was you know, they, they tempered it for us, didn't they? But that she was, it was obvious that her final moments were approaching. And a, a professor of sociolinguistics in the United States uh, tweeted this. Now listen, that, that specialty is a specialty in which you are interested in the effect of language in society. So a specialist in how words work and what words accomplished. And this is what she wrote. 
She said, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. And obviously it betrays all kinds of ignorance about what the queen actually did. And, you know, the most peaceful dismantling of an empire in history that she oversaw. But more than that, this language is designed to feed hatred and hostility. It's designed not for the benefit of the queen, that the queen would hear these sentiments, but rather to inflame hatred among people and hostility among people. And so I believe that part of the Christian posture to this is to take, you know, I could take the proverb, for example, in Proverbs 4, where we're told to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart, more popular translations put it, for from it flow the springs of life. Be aware of the forces of the culture we're in and the way that it wants to distort and get into your spirit and corrupt your heart and change how you think and feel towards others. You see, at best, I think this can happen mindlessly. If you ever find yourself in a riptide at sea, a riptide is an invisible current beneath the surface. And you can find yourself powerless against it dragging you out before you're even conscious, you're way, way further out to sea than you intended to be. Find yourself in danger. And I think because we're immersed in cultural forces that drag us one way or the other on these issues, as Christians, you can unthinkingly be pulled out to sea without even being aware it's happening and allowing these kind of toxic and hostile ways of thinking and setting us in opposition to one another seep into your own heart and distort your ability to love brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, it's also true that if you're someone who carries hurt, there is a seduction, isn't there, to want to inflame that and feed that to a degree. And I, you know, I've taken a while to speak into these issues, partly because I wanted to have distance from the emotional volatility of what was happening two years ago so that we could look back soberly and reflect on these dynamics from the outside in, as it were. And I think one of the things that I would observe was the way in which part, some of the movement, as much as we're grateful that God and his providence has brought about the exposing of all these hidden animosities, part of this is understanding the way in which the ideologies that are so vocal in our day and age feed the hostility. And you see how there were hostile demands, like demands to defund the police or to take the knee, which were often used in a very kind of threatening way. And you saw this, didn't you, on social media, demands to policemen and politicians, you must take the knee. And of course, it's a way of trying to gain the upper hand, to reverse, to turn the tables. But it doesn't carry the fragrance of Christ, does it? Or of the peace of the gospel. You think of hostile assumptions, how so often... The insensitivities that all of us have participated in to some degree through just ignorance are labeled as racism or as microaggression. And I think that really, there may be truth to that at times, but I think at other times it's not true. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just insensitivity. It's, it's, it's blundering. 
Sometimes there were hostile accusations, like if you're not anti-racist, then you're racist. And of course, anti-racist is a very technical word, meaning a specific way of believing and thinking and practicing and wanting to overcome these issues. And, you know, for many people, I grew up in a white city with almost zero ethnic minorities. I would scratch my head and think, what on earth does that mean? You know, not now, but then. I'd have been thinking, what does it mean to be anti-racist in my context? And so how can, that, how can you say that to me? Or there were, there were very quick-fire um, accusations of racism that I don't think necessarily always were true. And in hostile language, the whole thing is framed in hostile language. You take a term like microaggression. Forgive me if this is not familiar to you. But it's a term which describes something real, the insensitivities that can exist and the way that you can um, unkindly treat another person from a different background. But it frames the issue in terms of violence, which in almost all cases is not true. It's not an act of violence. It's an act of stupidity or clumsiness or something else, insensitivity. But by framing it as an act of violence, we're, t we're, we're amping up emotions around these issues in a way that actually can cause deeper division, and so on. We could talk about more of these themes. I want to add, before I wrap up this point, that this counter-reaction of hostility would be non-existent were it not for the historic and ongoing wrongs that are perpetrated across racial boundaries. And I know that, and I see that. But I believe, and with all my heart, that as Christians, and I'm confident this is true of us in our church, that as Christians, our calling is to kill the hostility with Christ and walk in the good of what he accomplished for us upon the cross. And that we cannot side with movements that are anti-gospel for fear because we believe in the ends, corrupting the means, you know, participating in ways and means that ultimately damage the cause of Christ and our uniqueness as the people of God. The enemy then of ethnic peace is hostility. And when all sides see this and see it's it's, it's abiding reality and the forces that want to continually inflame it in our hearts, then we know what we have to repent of, don't we? And we can move towards Christ in this area of our lives. Let me more briefly speak then about the experience of ethnic peace. Having said that Christ was killing the hostility, Paul then writes that he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Now this is another way, I believe, in which we as Christians must differentiate ourselves from the world. The belief that happens in the world at large is really captured by the mantra of the marches, which is no justice, no peace. In other words, unless the world is fixed, then we cannot experience peace. And I understand that. There is a constant yearning in our souls, isn't there? For the justice of God to rule and reign, for the Lord of the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace to have his way in society. We want that. But as Christians, I think we have to recognize that the peace that we enjoy internally and inside 
our experience of the church family, cannot be conditioned on or dependent upon us achieving justice in the world. In fact, Jesus taught us to expect trouble. He said in John 16, in the world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. But he was setting up our understanding, our expectation that in this world, things will not be set to rights until King Jesus comes to rule and to reign. Similarly, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul's talking about the groaning of creation because things are broken here in this world. He says in Romans 8, 23, that not only the creation is groaning, but he says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we're waiting for justice, but it's Christ's justice that we're waiting for. We're waiting for his peace to rule and reign in this world. And so the reason why I stress that is because as Paul is preaching this gospel of peace, he's saying Christ came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. I do not believe that the peace that he was, he was speaking of there was a peace that necessitated the world get fixed, first of all. In fact, as he preached the gospel of peace in Ephesus, do you remember what happened? There was a riot. There was a riot. The city was in uproar. They almost killed him. There's anything but peace, except, except within the family of the church. My point is this, that the peace that we enjoy is a peace that can transcend the mess that the world is in. The experience of peace that Christ invites you into is a peace independent of this world being fixed. That's not to say that we don't pursue it, pray for it, labor for it. But it is not dependent upon it. What does that look like in reality? Well, it looks like the church being one new humanity. One new humanity, as, Christ, as, as Paul put it. It means that the church has to, even in the midst of terrible divisions in society, the church's calling is to be a counterculture, to be a city on a hill, to be a light to the nations. And that means that it's actually in our unity as God's people that we best display the goodness of the gospel. And this means that we put our love and allegiance to each other above our political interests and desires. And hence, it was, for me, the greatest sadness of some, one of the effects we saw two years ago was the fact that Christians were swiftly dividing on these issues, betraying the very message that we believe because of the antagonistic political conversations. And I'll say, I've been a pastor for 15 years, that there has never been anything that has saddened me, depressed me, or hurt me more than seeing how that played out, not only in our church, but in churches all over the place. How can we walk in the true peace, which is ours in Christ? We understand as Christians that there is a justice much deeper and more fundamental than social justice. It's the law of God that all of us have fallen short of. 
all of us. We also understand that there is a hostility more dangerous than racial and ethnic hostility, which is the wrath of God against sin. And we understand that there is a Savior who not only fulfilled the law of God by his perfect life, but absorbed the wrath of God in his body when he hung upon the cross in order to bring about the rule of peace among his people. So that all the divisions that we see in society become of less importance to our hearts and minds than the great breach that has been dealt with by him making peace between us and God and with each other within his body, the church. We're the company of the redeemed. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The experience of peace is ours. Finally, I want to think about the mission of ethnic peace. The temptation in this area is to grow weary because the tone out there is ugly at times, isn't it? The polarization and the culture wars and the realities of ongoing disagreement and misunderstanding even within the context of the church of God means that we are disheartened. And I think we see that more across the Atlantic than we do here, but it nevertheless is here. And you see it even in the fact that these divisions still exist every Sunday morning when people of different ethnicities and races worship in different places. And therefore, it's easier, isn't it, for us to kind of ignore these issues or to drift with the cultural tides and imagine that the solutions are out there and what's taking place in the conversation out there. But as Christians, I believe we've got to come back to the gospel. We must not grow weary in pursuing our, our calling. Why? The answer is because this is not a secondary issue. There are many secondary issues in Christian theology. I would class baptism and the mode of baptism as a secondary issue. Do you want to christen your baby or dunk believers as you should do, as it says in Scripture? Um, let's not divide over this, but it helps if you agree with me. But let's not divide. It's a secondary issue. Do you um, believe that church government involves bishops or that it's elder-led churches or that we have uh, democracy within churches? Well, we all disagree on these issues, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondary issue, as far as I'm concerned. Do you prefer worship with an organ and smells and robes or do you prefer... Good smells generally, I suppose. Or do you prefer um, endless, endless repetitive singing? Or do you prefer something in the middle? I don't know. Whatever seems right to you. These are secondary issues. But listen, friends. The issue of ethnic peace and unity is a primary issue. It is at the very heart of the gospel. This is what is so emphatically clear in this passage. How Paul says in verse 15 that Christ, he, he died for us, that he might create one new man. Do you think Christ had it in his heart as he was dying on the cross that we would hate one another? Or be hostile or divided? Absolutely not. 
is making peace. He died that he might reconcile us both to God, he says in verse 16. He died and then rose again and then preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is the message that he brought to the world, peace. Have peace with God and enjoy peace with each other. This is a primary gospel issue. How does the Lord Jesus want us to pursue this then? I do not believe, please don't mishear me, I don't want to sound mocking in this, but I do not believe that the answer is in more diversity training. I do not believe that the answer is in more publishing statements like every company did on race issues. Just saying, just wearing credentials out there in a tokenistic fashion. I do not believe even that representation is a solution where you have more leaders from ethnic minorities. I think that is a beautiful fruit of the gospel, but it's not the cause of real peace. As we tragically seen in America that under a black presidency with representation, America has not become more united. This has to be a, f- a fruit rather than a cause. Rather, I believe the answer is here in what Paul says in verse 17. Listen carefully when he said that he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Now, Christ didn't preach at all after he rose from the dead. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the commission that Christ left upon his apostles and his church to be the bearers of peace, to be the ambassadors of the gospel, preaching reconciliation between God and each other. In other words, it is at the heart of our evangelism, our gospel bearing, that we move towards ethnic peace. It's not secondary, and it must never be forgotten. It is part of the mission. It is part of the gospel. And the implication of this, three charges as I close. Number one, you, brother, sister, you must see your calling before God as a cross-cultural missionary. That may take you places you never expected to go. It may keep you here in London, where we have an extraordinary opportunity to share the gospel across all ethnic lines. You are a cross-cultural missionary if you understand the gospel rightly. And that has massive practical implications about your intentions and your heart and your relationships whether you see that and move in that direction deliberately as the apostles did. That's charge number one. Charge number two is this, that each of you, each of us, must embody the welcome of the gospel, which is to say that if we're called to live in the love that Christ has called us to, that love means a deliberate moving across boundaries, never retreating into the comfort of people like ourselves, but always moving into relationships and the welcome of Jesus, just as Christ himself taught and demonstrated by his own life. 
I think that's incredibly important in a church like ours. Where a person can walk in and perhaps feel, ah, this isn't a church for me. If they don't see enough similarity in the congregation. And what that requires, therefore, is the church to embody the mission, the cross-cultural mission that he preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near, to make one new body. That doesn't happen by accident, friends. Paul had to leave Jerusalem to make it happen. He had to go into the nations. And the welcome happens by his understanding the seriousness and the somber reality of this calling. And the third charge is this to draw on the limitless supplies of the grace of God because we as God's people will make many, many mistakes in this area. Many. We'll cause offense. We'll trigger hidden tripwires in each other's hearts. We'll be insensitive. We'll be stupid. And the only way we can keep moving past this is what it says in one of Paul's letters, love covers a multitude of wrongs. Love covers a multitude of wrongs. And where you carry any past hurt, understand the depth, the limitless resource of the gospel to heal your heart and heal the breach between you and other people. We have to walk in that. We have to live in that. Not just across racial and ethnic lines, in every area where we experience conflict and hurt and disappointment and offense. Let the church be the church because we are bound together by the blood. The blood of Jesus that covers all sin. And in this way, I believe we can honor him and we can display his accomplishments to the world. The reasons for which he died. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you were dying on the cross and your breath was expiring from your body, that the grace and the mercy, the love of God was what flowed out from your veins. even in the face of an angry, baying crowd. Even in the face of the most grievous injustice ever known in the history of the world. Let the gospel control us, Lord. Let it shape how we think and how we feel. Let it draw us together in unity and love. Build a church here that brings you pleasure. There's a kind of advertisement for the heavenly reality. Kill in us the hostility. Let us enjoy the peace of God. May we take seriously, Lord, the cause for which you died and be those who bring peace to those who are far off and those who are near.
In Jesus' name, amen. When events unfolded two years ago, I wanted to press pause on the conversation around these issues because I felt that it was inappropriate to deal with them when we could not take communion together because we were separated. That is no longer a problem. To take the bread and to drink the wine is the most visible symbol of our oneness in Christ because every one of us needed his death and any, every one of us benefits by it when we believe in Jesus. And I want us to sit in silence for a couple of moments as we receive the bread and the wine. I want to encourage you to give thanks for his accomplishment, to confess where you need to confess any hostility or just apathy, and to ask the Lord to bring about the oneness that he achieved for us upon the cross. Amen? Let's just sit in the peace of this moment as we receive the bread and drink the wine. If you're not a Christian, just let these things pass you by. And let's in this way worship the Lord and honor him in our hearts.